This morning's readings from 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 4, verses 6 to 21. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What, have, what do you have that you do not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come to you in love and with a gentle spirit? We continue our 1 Corinthians series, and you know, I titled the series Hard Words for a a Troubled Church, or or something like that. Anyway, it's a a troubled church, Corinth, and um, so, and I wanted just just to think about troubled churches. You may know in, you know, in your experience of churches that there are many churches in the world, in Melbourne, around the corner, in other states of Australia, overseas, many churches that take up a lot of space. They, um, you know, a lot of buildings, a lot of programs, a lot of singing, a lot of sermons, a lot of Bible studies, a lot of council meetings. And for some of these churches, it's strange. They're, they can be very ineffective. They can be doing a lot but not actually making much difference making much impact. On the other hand, there are other churches 
around the corner, close by, interstate, overseas. Often churches who you would least expect who actually do make a significant impact. Lives are changed, justice is brought to the neighbourhood, people are healed and baptised. And so what's the difference between these two kinds of churches? Well, I think the key is in the verse from our reading today, which says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. That's the key. See, where I'm getting at is that the problem with the Corinthian church was, was that they were one big and happening church, but they lacked power. They lacked kingdom power because they weren't preaching the gospel and they weren't living as God wanted them to live. They had the wrong idea about how Christians should live and they had the wrong goals. They had the wrong moral code. They had the wrong um, vision of what the ideal Christian looked like. And Paul wants to change this. And in our passage this morning, he appeals to them to imitate him. He's like an ancient sage, like a philosopher, sort of a grand philosopher appealing to his disciples saying, follow me in my footsteps, like a father to a child. He says, you are my dear children in verse 14. I am your father in the gospel in verse 15. Please be like my son, my spiritual son, Timothy, who imitates me, verse 17. That is the way to truly live as disciples. And he says, I I say this in love because I don't don't want to have to discipline you. They thought they were morally, intellectually and spiritually superior to others, even superior to Paul himself. And they were virtue signalling to each other and to their non-Christian neighbours. You know that idea of virtue signalling that people sometimes talk about where you kind of show off your views on things and that you've got the right views, the right politics, the right moral understanding of, of thing, life. And you do that so that people will like you. They were doing that to their non-Christian neighbours, which is generally a bad idea, but what it revealed was that their, their virtue, the, their understanding of what the virtuous life looked like wasn't even Christian. It was kind of a secular Greek version of what the virtuous life looked like. And as a result, I think Paul thinks, that's why you're lacking kingdom power. And as a church, their impact is muted. So as we look at this passage, I sort of I want you to think about for yourself what your understanding of the virtuous life looks like. Where do you get this understanding of the goal for the Christian and the goal for a church? Is that something that you've got from, from Jesus or have you got it from somewhere else? See, once you become a Christian, you spend your life building Christian character by practicing these Christian virtues. And it's more than just following right and wrong. It's to develop this Christian virtue inside of us. It's so that um, these, these ideas of what the virtuous life looks like comes second nature to you. But the reality is our, our understanding of what, how to live, isn't just influenced by our faith in Jesus. We have multiple voices speaking into our lives. And Christians can get easily more influenced by moral thinking that has nothing to do with Jesus. And so we can start to develop the wrong virtues so that we look virtuous to our friends at 
at work, but this might not have anything to do with what Jesus wants. And so this is kind of what's happening in Corinth. He wants them to stop being worldly and start becoming kingdom people. And so he's going to show them, he's going to show them the place of kingdom people, the life of kingdom people, and the power of kingdom people. So look at verse 6 to 7, the humble place of kingdom people. Part of the problem for these Corinthians was that they didn't know their place, their right place. Many of them thought they were different to the apostles, more advanced. They thought, Paul and Apollos teaches us different things, but we know better. We know our Greek philosophers. They don't even know their Greek philosophers. I mean, Paul reckons he does, but he doesn't really know. Not like I do, because I actually know them personally. You know, So often that's a kind of big mistake we make. We puff ourselves up in our private thoughts. We hear the Bible taught. We hear church leaders speak, and we think, that doesn't apply to me. What the Bible says is out of date. This often applies to moral teaching, especially about sex, about money, about consumerism, about the big principles of life. We wrongly think these things, that that what the Bible says doesn't apply to us. We think we're more progressive, we're more enlightened than our backward ancient church. And we wrongly think that Jesus' teaching about rich people and, and greed doesn't apply to us. But look at verse 7. Paul says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? They thought they were special, but everything they actually had was given to them by God and by Paul and Apollos in their ministry. They're not, they're not special. They're not different. And Paul says to them in the opening of this passage, I've been previously talking about Paul and myself and Apollos so that you can understand what it means to live a truly Christian, virtuous way. But you have become puffed up and arrogant in your thinking, verse 6. And he says, please don't go beyond what's written. And this is kind of a saying that he's quoting here. And we can sort of get the sense of it from verse 7 that do not go beyond what is written. He's talking about Keep a lid on your arrogance, please. You know, he's basically saying don't go beyond what's written in the scriptures about pride. Stay in your lane, as the Americans say. You know how they say it? Stay in your lane. You know, know your place. He's saying stay in your lane with, with regards to God and the apostles and the teaching of Jesus. Know your humble place before God. And this is what we must do as well. To be able to develop Christian virtue and live the Christian life, We must begin from a place of humility. We must realise our place before God. We must go lower, he must go higher. You can tell if you're being influenced by, I reckon, you can tell if you're being influenced by an alternative set of virtue ethics because it almost always makes you more important. It drives you towards arrogance. You believe you know better than what God has revealed in his word. But kingdom people know their humble place. Well, in verse 8 to 13, he goes on to talk about the life of kingdom people. He goes on to make this stark contrast in lifestyles. And he refers to what they think the virtuous life looks like. And then he talks about himself and his ministry and Apollos' ministry. And he contrasts the two. And to be able to kind of read this, verse 8 to 13 section, with the right voice in your head, you've got to think of Paul being sarcastic, all right? He's being sarcastic. So he says in verse 8, 
look at you. Aren't you successful? Haven't you got lots of money and stuff and fine things? You're so powerful. You didn't even need us. And then he continues the sarcasm in verse 9. But look at, look at us apostles. We're a sorry lot. We're about to be condemned to death like slaves, thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. We have been made a spectacle for everyone to mock. And he's talking about the persecution that they'd experienced. And he goes, continues this back and forth. They are wise, he says in verse 10, but he and Apollos are fools for Christ. Verse 11, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, brutally treated and homeless. Remember, remember this church in Corinth, this is the, the upper middle class, private school educated, leafy suburbs church, you know. They don't associate with the poor when they have meals at church. The, they sit on one side and any poor people who happen to walk in sit on their own table. So no wonder they look down at Paul and Apollos and their poverty that they've embraced. He says in verse 10, you are honoured, we are dishonoured. See, Paul and Apollos had sacrificed everything to do their ministry. They travelled around from town to town, relying on the generosity of others, kind of like what we've just heard from Lauren. They were persecuted and beaten up and thrown in jail. They literally got their hands dirty with ministry. It's not just talk that they do. They continue to bless people despite the life that they'd, that they'd lived. So he says in verse 13, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. It's the image on the front of the cover for today. And so do you see how this is working, this section? If you hear the sarcasm, the very way the Corinthians think that they have made it in life, that they are rich, successful, smart and worldly, is, that's the very way they think Paul and Apollos ought to be. And so they look down on them because they're not like that. But Paul says they're wrong. What, they what they're celebrating is actually unchristian. It's got nothing to do with the virtuous life at all. Jesus does not care about this. And the way Paul actually is, and Apollos actually is, condemned to death, hungry, thirsty, poor, homeless, mocked for their faith, viewed as scum is actually what the Corinthians should be aiming for. So it's very interesting, this section. And what Paul's doing, he's actually teaching them with a kind of a back and forth of sarcasm, the theology of basic Christian discipleship. It's cross theology 101. He's describing the cross-shaped life. He's saying the apostle must carry their cross. They must be willing to live lives of sacrifice in service of Jesus Christ. And he's saying the Corinthians should be doing the same thing. This is not new. This is just basic stuff. This is what Jesus taught over and over. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 16. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever wants to, whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus says, you know, don't store up treasures on earth. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Make a choice. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. He says, the last will be first and the first will be last. Paul is actually offering himself and Apollos as examples 
of this sacrificial cross-shaped life that Jesus is talking about. They have given up their rights to be able to serve God. And he's saying, this is what it means to be apostle, but actually it's also what it means to be a, a Christian, a, a kingdom person. This is the virtuous life, not what you think it is. Paul is their founding pastor. He's their first apostle. And yet, this, this man who should be great in their thinking has become their servant. He's lowered himself for them. And Jesus says, this is the kind of you know, sacrifice, the price you pay for the life of ministry. When he sent out the 12, listen to the sorts of things he said. Um, Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you and listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. This is the cross-shaped lifestyle of kingdom people, of apostles, of disciples, and this is the way Paul wants the Corinthians to be. And it was the opposite of what they thought things should look like. Well, in, ver well, in verse 14 to 21, Paul sort of indirectly shows them that this is where, as kingdom people, if they live this out, they will get power. Paul says, you know, basically, I'm being sarcastic and I'm trying to get you to wake up and realise how wrong you are but my point is not to shame you, but to warn you. I want you to live the true Christian life as a kingdom person with access to kingdom power. He says, remember who I am. I'm your spiritual father. I introduced you to Jesus. I discipled you. Your church exists because of my ministry. I know you better than you know yourself. So listen to me. As your spiritual father, I urge you to imitate me, verse 16. Follow my way, my, my life, my way of life in Christ Jesus. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. You should become one too. And he says, if you want another example, look to Timothy, who I discipled, who's my spiritual son. He imitates me. He will show you how to do it. And this is what basic Christian discipleship looks like, isn't it? You model the way to a younger person and they model the way to other people and the thing just keeps going on and on. Uh, a really good way to disciple people is simple. First of all, you might have the person that you're trying to lead and disciple and they look to you and they want to imitate you just as Timothy imitated Paul. And so you perhaps you're teaching them to pray. So what you do is you first pray with them and they observe you praying and you say you pray 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 and they just stand there or sit there and observe you and then you do that for a while for a couple of weeks and then you might ask them to pray with you and to join you so you lead the praying and then three quarters of the way through you ask them would you like to pray just a sentence or two and they'll give it a go and pray for something and you finish it off and then you do that for a while and then you get them to lead the prayers and you just help them a little bit and they pray a bit for five minutes and you just add a bit at the end. And then finally what you do is you just let them pray for you. And after doing that for, for a month or two, you've discipled someone through imitation how to pray. So it's basically you observe me, then you help me, then I help you and then 
I'll observe you. That's a great model for discipleship. And that's what Paul is kind of doing on a grand scale, through Timothy, through to the Corinthians. And of course, the fact that discipleship is imitation is a bit of an important reminder for us that people are watching us all the time. They're watching what we do, how we live our lives, whether it's younger Christians or Christians who are new in their faith. They look at how you talk. They look at what you spend your money on, on your attitudes, on your moral code, your relationships, how you treat your family, how reliable you are with your appointments. If you gossip, if you make or laugh, make dodgy jokes or laugh at dodgy jokes, whether you read your Bible at all, they take all of this in and absorb it and that's kind of what they imitate. And luckily for you, they're not just watching you, they're watching other people as well. So if you're falling short, they've still got a chance. (laughs) Um, But the thing is, you might be the main influence on that person's life, especially I I think about this in regards to parents and children. You know, children are observing their parents, but, but then they'll eventually start to observe other people as well. So we've got to step up and disciple younger Christians and know that we're being watched But why don't we intentionally engage in these discipleship relationships and do it well? And even if you've been a Christian for not very long, you might think no one's going to want to imitate me. But there will be someone who will be looking at you. And so that's a great opportunity for you too. And in fact, in that relationship of discipleship, both people grow. It's not just the person who's the follower. Now the thing that we see here in this passage, the Paul is saying he's not just putting himself forward as a model of being a Christian, but he's describing the radical discipleship life. He's not just talking about middle-class, easygoing Christianity. He's talking about real sacrifice. At different times in history, Christians have been more influenced by different examples of the radical disciple. They've looked at characters like Francis of Sisi or the Wesleys or William and Catherine Booth from the Salvation Army or Mother Teresa, young teenage Christians in earlier years, you know, in the 20th century, um, you know, if you talk to Christians who are kind of of the older generation, they'll often say, yeah, when I was a teenager, we used to read missionary biographies, you know, to be inspired. Um, These days, you know, what do you read as a teenager? I don't know, Harry Potter or something. I don't know. But um, this is what young Christians used to read because they were inspired by the radical sacrifice and discipleship of these people. When we read the book of Acts, there's this ideal picture of the church in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 2, where everyone shares their possessions and everyone's praying and worshipping all the time. Thousands of people becoming Christians. And we, we get the sense when we read the rest of Acts and the New Testament that you don't have to be that hardcore if you want to be a Christian and if you want to be a church. On the other hand, what Paul's modelling here is an actual option this is the voluntary life of radical sacrifice and it remains for us today to consider it's not that you are saved only if you act like at that extreme level that paul's talking about on the other hand if you want to have an image of the virtuous life what you're aiming for aim for that that's the thing to aim for we're too quick to dismiss the the, the real extreme pictures that are shown to us in the Bible. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe that should be what we're aiming for. And the point that Paul gets to is, I think, the most exciting point. 
And it's kind of subtle, but I think this is what he's saying. That it's, He's sort of saying that if you really want to have true kingdom power, it manifests in the preaching of the true gospel, not this kind of false one that you're following, Corinthian church, but also on the radical cross-shaped life. The power of the kingdom of God, it's most evident in Jesus' death on the cross. It was in that one perfect sacrifice that heaven broke through, the sun turned black, the earth shaked, people came up out of the ground, sin and death were defeated, Jesus provided a way of salvation. And God has shaped the universe in such a way that when the apostles preached the cross and lived that cross-shaped life, imitated this cross-shaped life and sacrificed everything to serve Jesus that their ministry was accompanied with power. And likewise, when the church preaches this true gospel and lives this truly radical cross-shaped life, their, their church community and their ministry is accompanied by kingdom power. Big stuff in the book of Acts, you see it, big stuff starts to happen. Revival breaks out. Demons flee out of people. The blind can see. The lame can walk. The poor were fed. It was the closest thing anyone had seen to heaven on earth. Now the Corinthians, they weren't experiencing that. They were not teaching this gospel of the cross. They were not living this cross-shaped life. And the false teaching in, uh, that was influencing them, that it did not have power at all. Look at verse 19. Paul says, I'm going to come and visit you soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking but what power they have, which is obviously none. Paul's going to come, on the other hand, and demonstrate the power of the kingdom in his preaching. And when he returns to them, the false teachers will be shown just to have fancy words, but they won't be able to demonstrate this same kind of power. They say they have the Spirit, but they don't, they're not able to demonstrate that. So what have we learned? We've learned that here at Mary Creek, we need to be careful not to be like the Corinthians and get caught up in false teaching and the wrong image of the virtuous life. We should be careful not to be blindly following the false teaching of others that are not Jesus. If we want to be true people of God's kingdom, we have to repent of our arrogance and adopt a humble persona, humble posture before God. And then we have the option of how radical, how much we're going to pursue that virtuous life, that image of the virtuous life, which is Jesus on the cross. This is a life that is willing to make significant financial sacrifices, that is willing to lay our personal plans aside and let God lead us our lives to further, to potentially more dangerous places, uncomfortable places. This is the life that, stayed, that stays radically obedient to God. If we want to see kingdom power unleashed here at Mary Creek, we need to know that it will come down to how much we stay faithful to the true life-giving gospel and live sacrificially in service of him. Let's pray that we can be that kind of church. Our Lord God, uh, we thank you that you have shown us how to live and that you have empowered us to do that. You've provided examples in Paul and Apollos and Timothy it's not just that we have a, a model, but we actually are given a new life when we follow the true gospel. We pray that we will be a church empowered by you and not a church that's flaky 
and distracted or arrogant. We pray that we can be a church that makes a difference, makes an impact on our community. Amen.